Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, This shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order. And I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Alana Ressler. Dr. Ressler is a reproductive endocrinologist and board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She spent 18 months of her fellowship studying PCOS in a lab. She's carried this knowledge over to her clinical work and she's proud to lead the Alum Fertility PCOS program, a unique multidisciplinary team that offers comprehensive care to women with PCOS. In today's episode, we'll be giving you the lowdown on PCOS, what it is, how it's diagnosed, specific treatments, and how it all relates to infertility. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, Dr. Alana Ressler to the show. I'm so excited to have you today. Good morning. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to be talking about PCOS, which I'm sure many have heard of, but I'd love for you to start off with what exactly is PCOS? What does PCOS stand for? And then just maybe the prevalence of PCOS. Sure. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, and it is a complex endocrine condition, and it is actually the most common endocrine condition that affects women of reproductive age, affecting up to about 15% of women. Which is, I mean, if you think about those types of numbers, right? Then that's like a huge portion of the population. So say somebody is either diagnosed with PCOS or they're having certain symptoms, what are they looking out for when it comes to this diagnosis? Sure. So 
the diagnosis is based most commonly on what are called the Rotterdam criteria. There are various criteria that have been established. Some are used more for research purposes, but the Rotterdam criteria are used most for clinical purposes. And someone has to meet two of the following three things to be diagnosed with it. The first one is having irregular menstrual cycles. So from the start of one period to the start of the next period, the normal range is anywhere from 21 to 35 days. So if someone's period is either happening more or less frequently than that range, then that's considered an irregular cycle. So that's point number one. Point number two is having elevated hormones called androgens. Androgens include hormones such as testosterone or DHEAS, which all women do have present. However, if they are elevated, that meets that part of the criteria. Or if a woman has symptoms that are driven by these hormones. So examples of symptoms might be like acne or excess or unwanted hair growth, which is referred to as hirsutism or scalp hair thinning. So even if the blood work looks normal, but someone is experiencing those symptoms, then that meets that second second piece. And then the third is having what are called polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound. So this part is always a little bit confusing because the name polycystic ovary implies an ovary filled with abnormal cysts, but that's not actually the case. It just means having a certain number of follicles. And a follicle is a structure that should be present in in the ovary of a reproductive age woman. It basically is the structure that houses an egg. So every month we have like a group of eggs available for use in our ovaries. And those are contained within these structures called follicles. And if someone on ultrasound has 12 or more follicles counted within an ovary, that makes it a polycystic appearing ovary. So I always think it should really be called like polyfollicular ovary because again, the name polycystic can be a little bit confusing. But again, if someone has any two of those three, then they meet the diagnosis. And so things to look out for would be how regular are your cycles? Are you having any excess acne or unwanted hair growth? Those would be some of the most common symptoms. Now, is there an average age of diagnosis typically, or do you see all age ranges with diagnosis? Yeah, I do see a full range. So it's thought to be something, a condition that someone is born with. So I would explain if like someone's born with brown eyes, there's someone they're also born with PCOS and it's present throughout the lifetime. It doesn't just suddenly appear. Now it may take varying amounts of time to to present or to make that diagnosis. So I do see, you know, anywhere from young teens through women into their late childbearing age or even beyond. But I would say it usually is diagnosed most often when someone is seeing their gynecologist for irregular periods. That's probably mm-hmm. one of the most common times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So let's jump into treatment. How is it typically treated? Mm-hmm. So there's unfortunately no cure. There's no like medication or treatment that can be given to make it go away forever. The symptoms can be managed successfully. And that's really how we treat it. It's based on someone's symptoms. So 
for example, if someone is having irregular periods and they're not trying to conceive, a birth control pill that contains estrogen and progesterone is typically the first-line treatment. In fact, that's the fir- considered the first-line treatment for anyone with PCOS because it really addresses most symptoms that are created from the PCOS. Now, if someone is trying to conceive, obviously, we don't want to use a birth control pill that would prevent someone from conceiving. And so there are different ways that we can help someone to ovulate more regularly. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I feel like this is one of those diagnoses that has been prevalent kind of within the wellness industry that some will target and say, oh, we have supplements that can aid in PCOS. Have you had patients coming in kind of asking you, hey, like I I found this supplement and it's worked for other people. What do you think about it? Are there any vitamins or supplements that you would stand by and say, hey, this might work for X, Y, and Z? Yes. So you do bring up a good general point in that there is a lot of information out there, a lot good, some not so good. So to always, you know, confirm with your medical provider about it to, to confirm it. But in general, in regards to supplements for PCOS, there is one that we commonly use, which is called inositol. Inositol is is six carbon sugar. It's it's made by our own bodies. It's available in certain food sources and it comes in various forms. And two of the forms, D-Cairo and myo-inositol, act at the level of the ovary and the insulin receptor, which are two key components for PCOS. And there are studies showing that use of this this supplement can be beneficial. Now, it has to be those particular ones and at a certain ratio. So we do point patients in the direction of a product called Ovacetol made by the vitamin company Theralogics. There are others out there as well, but we, again, want to confirm that it's the right form and at the right ratio for its benefit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about what does insulin have to do with PCOS? I know you just briefly mentioned insulin. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So insulin, as you know, is a hormone. It's made by the pancreas and its job is to metabolize glucose. And women with PCOS are at increased risk of having a condition called insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is when someone has to work harder, their pancreas has to work harder and produce more insulin to metabolize the same amount of glucose. And so, again, women with PCOS are at increased risk of developing insulin resistance. And this can go on to become further advanced, such as prediabetes or diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And so, we like to address, you know, this with all of our patients who have PCOS and do a test called a two-hour glucose tolerance test. And this test involves basically going to a lab in the morning fasting, and we check the fasting blood glucose and insulin levels. And then there's this kind of gross sugar drink, like similar to the test that's done in, in pregnancy for the glucose testing. And that that drink is was taken. And then we measure the glucose and insulin levels an hour later and an hour after that. So at the one and two hour Mark and basically, so we're like giving this sugar challenge and seeing how well does the body handle this sugar challenge? Is it not a problem for it? And the 
glucose and insulin levels go back down to normal or, you know, maintain within the normal range throughout the whole time? Or does the insulin level have to spike up really high in order to maintain that glucose in the normal range, which is an indication of insulin resistance? And then, of course, there can be even more advanced findings suggesting prediabetes or diabetes. So, so insulin, you know, we don't really think of as a reproductive hormone typically, but it actually does interplay with the reproductive hormones and can even affect like menstrual cycles and fertility. So it's important to, you know, I think of it as coming at this PCOS from all different directions and angles and really optimizing all of these different aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what can somebody do if they may suspect they have PCOS or even I had a few people asking for their own children, like they have preteens and they're worried, oh, I think I think that they might have PCOS. Where do they start? Where's a good starting place for that? Yeah. So I think Starting either with, if it's a young preteen girl, probably with the pediatrician and just raising the concern, a gynecologist is also a good place to start. Ultimately, my subspecialty, which is reproductive endocrinology and infertility, we do some additional training. Um, we train as OBGYNs, and then we do an additional three-year fellowship to subspecialize in the endocrine and infertility piece. So we, I guess, would be considered the experts in that area. And I spent half of my fellowship actually studying PCOS in a lab, which is why I have a particular, you know, special interest in it and have carried it over to clinical work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you lead this Illum Fertility PCOS program. So how did you kind of get involved with all of that? I'd love to hear kind of the backstory on that. Yeah. So so again, I guess it started in my fellowship where we do spend half of the time doing basic science research. And I was fortunate to be placed in this terrific lab that was primarily studying obesity and different forms of like bariatric surgeries and medications. And my part in that lab was doing experiments studying PCOS. And I actually had like a rodent model of PCOS that I was using to study various aspects of it, including effects of, of diet and bariatric surgeries and different behavioral aspects of it. So it was a pretty cool time to have that much, you know, time to, to really focus and, and become such an expert in one particular area. And then in my clinical work, you know, carried it over. So Illum Fertility, the practice where I work, has this really terrific program to help women diagnose and manage their PCOS because it is it is a little bit confusing and and we really have a whole program dedicated which includes not only myself but we have a terrific PA who also helps manage a lot of our patients we have two registered dietitians because as I'm sure you know, we'll talk about a little bit more nutrition and exercise are really a key component to managing PCOS. We have a mental health counselor because anxiety and depression can be associated with PCOS. We have a dedicated nurse and, and what we call navigator who helps support our patients. So anyways, we have this whole infrastructure to really help people manage it because again, it can be really overwhelming and confusing. Yeah. And so you are, you're primarily located, primarily located in Connecticut and New York, right? Correct. Do you offer any like virtual appointments for those out of state or no? Yes, we do. To COVID, we have telehealth, Zoom appointments. 
patients that we do our consults for. So we do see patients even still today over Zoom for consults. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's just such a great, I mean, when you have a diagnosis like that, it, it can be very scary, you know, as any diagnosis can be. And to know that there's just like a specific program that like just focuses all on your specific condition. And especially because as we'll kind of jump into now, infertility can be so prevalent within this condition. So it's just nice to just know that there's like something out there that's like specific for that and specifically geared for you. Before we jump into the infertility piece, do you want to just touch on nutrition and exercise? Because I know you mentioned that briefly. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on how people can use nutrition and exercise to help this help them treat this condition. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So really, those are two of the best ways to help manage PCOS because it helps with the hormonal balance. It helps to reduce the insulin resistance. And when we talk about good nutrition, what we're really meat, what we really mean is a well-balanced diet. There's a lot of, this is where the bad information comes in online. There's a lot of bad information that I've had patients say I have to be gluten-free and soy-free and dairy-free. And one even said I have to be a vegan now. And none of the above is true. Really, it's about good balance and portion control using more or less like a Mediterranean diet as an example with healthy fats and and lots of vegetables, you know, colorful plate is really key. And in terms of the exercise piece, no wrong type of exercise, I like to say. Unfortunately, again, there's some various information that certain exercise might be bad for PCOS. In general, my advice is to really diversify your workout. Goal is 30 to 65 days a week, which can be a lofty goal, especially if not doing much to begin with. But it can be as little as, you know, taking a brisk walk or taking a yoga class, a Zumba class, you know, doing strength training, going for a bike ride, like whatever physical activity you enjoy. That's what I suggest because then it will be fun and won't seem like a chore. Yes, exactly. Today's episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is a great place to get some of your grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to your doorstep is a huge time saver, and I have personally really enjoyed some of the brands they carry, like Simple Mills, Siete, and their own Thrive Market brand. Have you ever tried the Thrive Market protein sugar cookie mix? Because it's pretty dang good. Some of our other staples include the whole wheat flour, steel cutouts, and their turkey sticks. As a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single order. On average, you'll save over 30% each time. I recently saved $30 on my last order. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily. It gives you cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Thrive Market also has over 70 filters on their website and app. You can filter between gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials with the click of a button. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join and they give. Join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Lindsay. 
All right. So what is the prevalence of infertility in women with PCOS? Yeah. So PCOS is, again, highly associated with what's called ovulation dysfunction, meaning someone is not having regular periods. They're not ovulating regularly, and it can be more challenging to figure out how to time things. And that is one of the leading causes of infertility. So is there, I I had this question quite a bit within my community, is there like an ideal time for those that have POS to try to conceive if you know that you have this condition? Well, for all women, age, unfortunately, is not on the side of fertility because as we know, as we get older, this set supply of eggs that we're born with, the total number is declining as we're getting older. and The quality is also declining. And these statistically start to become noticeable in our mid-30s. So around 35, that's when they slowly start to change. And once we're into our 40s, most eggs are no longer normal, meaning that the DNA doesn't divide properly and doesn't lead to a healthy conception. And so, and once we're in our mid-40s, essentially they're no more normal eggs. So that applies for all women, whether someone has PCOS or not. The good news about PCOS is that quantity-wise, there tends to be a higher amount. So some women will suffer from infertility due to having a low egg supply, what we call ovarian reserve. And so that's a very common problem that we see. For PCOS, it's typically not a quantity issue. It's more of a timing issue. So really just to keep in mind for all women, again, PCOS or not, that starting in mid-30s, it starts to be potentially a little bit more challenging and into our 40s definitely can become more challenging. Can you just explain, just to kind of give us a base, how normal ovulation works? Because this is something that I think is kind of a mystery. Like people always say, oh, like, I can't wait to get pregnant. And then it's like, it's actually, you know, a lot goes into this. And so I would love for you to just talk about how normal ovulation works and how you can use that information to, you know, plan conceiving and how that might alter for those that have PCOS. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. This is actually something I review with every every new patient. I meet just the basics of the menstrual cycle and how ovulation works. I think it's it would be helpful to have, you know, a refresher health class when we like turn 30 or something. Who remembers from high school? So the way it works is, again, we have this set supply of eggs, right, that are contained within our ovaries. And as I mentioned, every month we have this set of eggs that becomes available for use. And these eggs are contained within these little follicles. And and if you envision the ovary on an ultrasound, it kind of looks like a chocolate chip cookie, right? So all of these little chips, like you see all these little black circles throughout the ovary, and each one of those chips is the follicle. And within each one of those is an So all of these follicles are little at the start of a cycle. And when we say start of a cycle, day one is the first day of flow of of a period. And so then there are hormones that talk within two places in our brain, the hypothalamus to the pituitary, and then it talks down to the ovary. So this is called the HPO or hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. And these hormones are talking basically one of these follicles 
grows larger than the rest. And this growth is driven by the hormone FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. So that hormone increases at the start of a cycle, and one of these follicles becomes the dominant follicle. And it takes about two weeks for this follicle to mature until mid-cycle, so roughly like day 14, if it's a 28-day cycle, around day 14, then another hormone change occurs, the LH surge. So this LH is released also from the pituitary and sends the signal down to the ovary telling this dominant follicle, okay, time to ovulate, release that egg. So that follicle will then release the egg and the egg leaves the ovary and it goes, it's swept into the fallopian tube, which is adjacent to the ovary connects to the uterus. It's like the the bridge between the ovary and the uterus. So that egg goes into the tube and it's there for only a short amount of time, about 24 hours or so. So that's really the the time that the egg is available. However, sperm can live longer in the reproductive tract. Sperm can live up to about 72 hours. So if intercourse occurs a day or two prior to ovulation, it should still be there awaiting the egg's arrival. And so then the sperm travels, you know, up through the uterus into the tube, and it's in the tube where the egg and the sperm actually meet and fertilize and becomes an embryo. And then it takes about five days for that embryo to travel into the uterus where it implants and grows. So in terms of like timing when trying to conceive, intercourse at like every other day mid-cycle is what's recommended. And again, this is easiest applied if someone has regular cycles, right? If, if someone has, you know, every about 28 to 30 days, they have regular cycles, they know they're ovulating probably somewhere between day 14 to 16. And that then intercourse, let's say days like 10, 12, 14, 16, something like that would cover that time, time frame. Now, if someone has irregular cycles, which again is common with PCOS, it can be a lot more challenging because ovulation would not be happening exactly at the same time each month. Now, for those that are specifically struggling with infertility, how do you approach treatment for that specifically? So to help someone to ovulate more regularly, we have a treatment that's called ovulation induction. And this involves taking a medication to just give a little bit of a boost to those follicles to get it to try to mature on a more regular basis. So the recommended first-line medication for PCOS for ovulation induction is a medication called letrozole or Femara. It's It works very similarly to a medication called Clomid, and these are both oral medications that are taken for five days, typically days like three through seven of the cycle, and then we do monitoring following taking that medication to see how are the ovaries responding? How are the follicles growing? How many are growing? What are their sizes? And we, we track that growth until we confirm that it's the dominant size range. And then we actually have another medication that can help trigger the ovulation so we can control that aspect as well. And like, how often do you think that this particular method works for someone that's might be struggling to get pregnant? Is it very often? I mean, obviously, you probably don't have like specific numbers, but just kind of to give the people listening kind of an overview of, okay, this works usually like seven out of 10 times or so. And if this doesn't work, we have to try something different. Yeah. So 
I want to preface this by saying, of course, before we would jump into this particular treatment, we would do a comprehensive fertility evaluation because while ovulation is a key part of this process, there are other parts obviously involved as well, like the health of the inside of the uterus, the uterine cavity, the health of the fallopian tubes, the health of the sperm. So we have tests to to get that big picture and confirm like this is the issue at hand and there aren't any others to consider as well because that that might change the treatment that we select. So if we if let's say ovulation dysfunction is the is the main issue and everything else looks good and let's say it's sort of the gold standard meaning someone is under 35 good uterus good tubes good sperm this type of treatment works up to about 15 to 20% of the time that's like a per cycle chance of success so if any of those variables are a little bit different like let's say a woman is a little bit older and she's closer to 40 the chances of success are going to be lower than that because of the egg quality issue. And that's, again, per cycle. So as you can see, it's fairly low. But keep in mind, every month that a couple is trying to conceive on their own, only about 15%. Pretty low. Yeah. 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 It's only happening about 15% of the time. Anyway, so this boosts it up to that maybe slightly better. And then there's cumulative success, right? The more you try something, the more likely you are to succeed. So we encourage patients to try something more than just once, mm-hmm, usually mm-hmm. Um, about three times or so. That's where we see the cumulative success sort of uh, peak, and that's up to about 40 to 60%. So if it doesn't work after a few attempts, then we have another type of treatment in vitro fertilization, IVF, which is highly successful. And that same sort of gold standard scenario can work more like up to 60 to 70% of the time per Mm -hmm. transfer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Excellent. So I have a few questions from the community on some more specific things. Have you seen an uptick in PCOS being diagnosed compared with the past? Yes, I do think that there is a greater awareness of PCOS now, which is terrific. I think there we still have, you know, a bit of a ways to go regarding that, but I think that a lot of the time historically women would go in for irregular periods in passing might be told, "Oh, you may have PCOS, here's a birth control pill." But now I think there is again more of an awareness and, and recognition that it's really just more than having irregular periods, right? It's, it's really is a complex condition that affects many different systems mm-hmm. of our health. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific tips for the hormonal acne that some might suffer from? So this specific person was just saying this is this is her main symptom. And do you have any specific treatments that are like your go-to? Yeah, so the acne is typically driven by those androgens, so the testosterone, the DHEAS. And so lowering those levels can be very helpful. The birth control pill does help to lower those levels. It By taking it, it increases the production of a protein that binds to the androgens. So it lowers like the active form of these androgens and, and helps in that regard. And if that alone is not enough, then there's a medication called spironolactone that we often use, which works to counter the activity of the androgens in a different manner. 
So the key is really, again, addressing that, that hormonal imbalance. Now, you mentioned birth control pills specifically. How about, so some people had questions, well, with an, will an IUD help me if I have PCOS? Great question. An IUD will help with a particular aspect of PCOS, which is what I like to refer to as uterine protection or keeping the uterus healthy. So one thing we didn't mention yet is that, you know, why do we even care if a period is irregular? Like if, if someone is not trying to get pregnant, who cares if, if someone has a period only once or twice a year? Well, the real concern is that if the lining of the uterus does not shed on a regular basis, the cells inside can change over time and increase risk of abnormal cells like precancer or cancer cells forming. So that risk increases after three months without um, having a period. So we really want to make sure that someone is having a period at least every three months. An IUD, specifically a progesterone-containing IUD, when when in place, is giving the uterus the progesterone that it's lacking if it's not having regular periods. And so that protects the uterus and keeps it healthy. So it doesn't matter, you know, once an IUD is in, a woman might not have a period for even the whole time it's in, which yeah, is Yeah, that's fine. what I was going to say. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question is, okay, mm-hmm. well, with your IUD, you know, yeah. very frequently with the Mirena, people will yeah. go months or may, they might even just have a period that's very light. And I, yep. and I do hear many women saying, oh, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of nervous. I don't get like a full period. Like I don't feel normal if I'm not having this full period every month. Yeah. So totally fine. As long as that marina or progesterone containing IUD is in place, it it's totally fine not to have the periods or to have lighter periods. But if the IUD is not in place and someone is not on any hormonal contraceptives, then that's where, you know, the danger can come in. So it's important you know, to get that progesterone that's lacking. So the IUD, again, will help with the uterine component. It won't help to balance androgens. So it won't like help help the other symptoms like acne or hirsutism. But if someone's only symptom is the irregular periods, then it could be a really good choice. Or if there, there are women out there who can't take estrogen, they have contraindication to taking it, and so an IUD with progesterone is a really good option. And then combining that, for example, with the spironolactone can work really nicely for all of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now, quick question for you. So what about postpartum when you know you may or may not be breastfeeding and you don't have a period for months, sometimes, like in my case, it was like over a year with most of my babies. Do you still have that same risk? No, you don't have that same risk as you do with other times in in the reproductive years. So it's okay to go for several months without having a period after um, having a baby. Okay, perfect. Okay, so let's see here. So there were many questions about this. How do I manage my PCOS after I've had babies? So shop is closed. How do I manage to kind of get myself on a healthy weight and balance afterwards? Yeah, so it can be a difficult time uh, 
to lose weight postpartum. Obviously, there is usually an initial drop in the weight, but then I hear a lot of women having a difficult time following that big drop. And I think just, you know, staying focused, maintaining these healthy habits of good nutrition and exercise and nothing comes overnight. You know what I mean? It, It takes time. Unfortunately, there's no magic bullet for PCOS or magic powder that that can just, you know, make it all go away. It it does take time. And I always encourage people to consider besides the weight, these good habits are helping to reduce other long-term risks, right? Like PCOS is associated with having the risk of the insulin resistance and developing diabetes. It's associated with having higher cholesterol levels, with weight gain, with difficulty losing weight, and all these things can be associated with cardiovascular disease risks. So just Staying healthy in terms of eating habits and and regular exercise will help reduce those long-term risks. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's see here. PCOS and miscarriage risk, are they related at all? Yeah. So there's some varying data on this, but really ultimately the, the difficulty is typically with the ovulation and conception. We do monitor all patients for their gin and progesterone levels once they conceive and supplement as needed. But any woman is potentially, you know, might need a little help in supplementing those levels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So somebody had a question about lean PCOS. What is it? Is it actually a thing? Yeah, it is a thing. So PCOS, as I mentioned, can be associated with, with waking being overweight. However, there are many women who are normal weight or even underweight who also have PCOS, and and this population is referred to as the lean PCOS. So there is like this stereotypical image of someone with PCOS who is overweight and has bad acne and is hirsute, but the reality is most women with PCOS don't look like that. And they might not have that diagnosis made as quickly because they don't fit that stereotypical appearance. But but lean PCOS is definitely a thing. And we see many, many women who are of normal weight with PCOS. And that is essentially in and of itself just treated the same. Okay, perfect. All right. So I am going to jump into these last two questions I have for you that I ask everyone I have on. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would that piece of advice be? That piece of advice would be breastfeeding is really hard. I didn't realize this until I became a mom and it is really hard and painful at the beginning. It does get better, but it is a lot of hard work. Yeah, no, I I have to completely agree with you. And I will say, like, with with our first baby, it was incredibly difficult. And by the fourth baby, it did not get any easier. I, I became more aware and I was obviously more educated and, you know, I was just better at recognizing issues. But it's not that the issues didn't arise or that I didn't have to tackle those same issues or different issues. I mean, with every kid, I can pinpoint a specific thing that happened with each of them that was different, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, I cannot agree with you more on that. That's, that's huge. So the last question is, if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? 
That's a tough question because right now my four-year-old is in the chicken nugget stage. Uh (laughs) It could be chicken nuggets then, you know. (laughs) That would go across with everyone pretty much. Or I would say pizza. Pizza is another one that goes across with everyone these days. But um, yeah, we are very much in the pizza chicken nugget pasta phase right now with my youngest. I hear you. And like my two-year-old is becoming, she's like, she's tough because she like knows that she can kind of get me to give her kind of what, like if I'm eating a, like a little chocolate chip cookie, she's like, oh, cookie. And so she'll get these things. And then when it comes to her dinner, she just, she always boycotts every meal now. And she just waits for like snack. But then I'm like, oh my gosh, like, she's going to be really hungry. She's not at the age where she can understand, right? So it's like, she's so hungry. And I'm trying to like, give her these like really healthy snacks now, like, I don't know, like a protein chocolate milk or something, because I'm like, she will not eat any dinner. It's like, incredibly painful. It's challenging, (laughs) but I'm sure she's thriving and growing. Uh, Yeah, no, it's one of those things where, you know, the big picture is that everything's fine. But, you know, it's like, yeah, little small worries that you have every day. And it's like, well, you know, this doesn't actually matter. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ressler, for taking time out of your busy day with all of your patients to talk with us about PCOS. This was really great. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.